when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. The UK's approach to coronavirus has splintered, with Scotland heading towards a full lockdown and much of the north of England going under stricter measures. We're still in the position where too much is being decided behind closed doors without the detail being provided to council leaders and mayors. Uh, and that is not acceptable given the seriousness of the situation. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times with me, Sebastian Payne. This week, we'll be delving into the coronavirus latest and whether a more transparent UK-wide approach can be achieved, as heard from Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham at the top there with health editor Sarah Neville and Scotland correspondent Muir Dickey. And later, we'll be looking at Boris Johnson's virtual Conservative conference speech and whether he has any hope of delivering on a domestic agenda during the pandemic. Unraveling that will be political editor George Parker and political columnist Robert Shrimsley. Sarah and Muir, welcome back to the pod. Thank you, nice to see you. Hi, Sev, good to be here. Now, I was just thinking about these latest restrictions coming in, looking at our different worlds and how people are sort of dealing with them there. And you know, up in Scotland, first of all, obviously, Nicola Sturgeon has been wearing a lot of masks and that sort of thing. Have you seen her out and about in any restaurants at all before these announcements were made? She certainly wasn't serving up dishes in the racks the fashion as Rishi Sunak was when he promoted the Eat Out to Help Out. And I think that the general tone of Nicola Sturgeon and her government has been of a greater caution throughout the pandemic, or at least since May, than the UK government. And Sarah, in the health world there, I feel like we've seen Matt Hancock out and about quite a bit trying to say people you can get back to life as normal. But it feels like the quite buoyant approach of senior people in the NHS has sort of come a cropper a bit given where we're at with the virus. Yes, I think now what we're seeing is rather a concerted attempt by health ministers, not just Matt Hancock, as you mentioned, but Nadine Dorries, uh, one of his deputies, to really start talking in relatively apocalyptic terms about what may happen to the NHS if people don't respect social distancing, don't abide by any applicable new lockdown restrictions. Matt Hancock quoted the Royal College of Emergency Medicine talking about how an explosion of the virus would lead to the implosion of the NHS. Well, it's quite interesting in the House of Commons that I think on the conservative side of the benches, they've always been fuller. And I think you always see that at prime minister's questions because Boris Johnson is keen to have as many Tories heckling and rallying behind him as possible. Whereas the Labour and opposition benches have been a little bit sparser, obviously the same for the SNP, because many of the MPs are from quite far-flung constituencies. Um, But it was very striking that Lindsay Hoyle, the Speaker of the Commons this week, emailed around everybody who works on the parliamentary estate and said, you really should be wearing masks. 
beyond just on transport now. So it's going to be interesting to see over the coming weeks of whether parliamentary staffers, journalists and MPs do wear masks, because as I think we sort of know, different MPs take a very different view on this sort of thing. But the apocalypse is not quite here yet on coronavirus. So let's look at the latest situation in the UK. Nicola Sturgeon has often led the UK by setting out new coronavirus restrictions ahead of England, Wales and the Westminster government. And so it happened again this week. Scotland's First Minister announced that pubs and restaurants across its densely populated central belt would close for millions of people in an effort to control the virus. But the different layers of rules across different parts of the UK has proved somewhat confusing and a new traffic light system is expected next week to make it simpler. Ms Sturgeon herself has called for a more coherent approach to tackling the second wave of COVID-19. We all have to take the decisions we think are, are necessary. One, one thing we are uh, trying to uh, see if we can cooperate on and align our positions on is uh, the UK government's working on this and I've signalled that we are working on a similar thing so we're going to see if we can come to some agreement as almost a sort of framework uh, document, notwithstanding what we might do this week for the future a framework of different levels of response depending on uh, different levels of infection. Sarah Neville, as ever, can you begin by giving us an overview of the state of coronavirus in the UK? It does look like the number of infections is increasing at a pretty rapid rate, but not evenly across the whole country. Absolutely. We are seeing quite a stark regional divide. I was looking at the figures yesterday on hospital admissions And what was striking was that more than half the national hospital admissions are in just two regions. That is the northwest of England and the northeast and Yorkshire. I think on those figures, which admittedly were a week or so out of date, they were the most recent we had, I think there were only 36 people who'd been hospitalised in the whole of the southwest. So we are seeing distinctions between regions that we didn't see to nearly such a marked extent during the first wave of coronavirus. Is that because people are acting differently or is it due to different testing in different parts of the country? I think that's hard to give a definitive answer to at the moment. I mean, there are clearly socioeconomic elements to people's likelihood to contract the coronavirus severely. Sadly, we've seen a higher rate of severe illness in the black and minority ethnic community and also, as I say, a degree of connection with somebody's socioeconomic circumstances, perhaps because People in that latter bracket are more likely to have to keep working outside the home and less likely to have the kind of jobs that you can just as easily do from your front room as from an office. But some of that, I think, is still being teased out by researchers. And I mean, perhaps one more positive note to to strike is that clinicians and scientists have learned so much more about how this illness behaves. It was such a steep learning curve at the beginning, but now it's not just President Trump who has been able to take advantage of some new treatments. They are making a difference to people across the UK as well. There was rather a striking statistic that I saw the other day, which is that the length of time people are spending in critical care is now less than half what it was at the start of the pandemic. 
Now, Muir Dickey, let's give it the picture from Scotland here. Obviously, Nicola Sturgeon is pretty concerned about the state of the virus, and that's why she's essentially closed most of Scotland's hospitality industry this week. Well, indeed, announcing the measures on Wednesday, Ms Sturgeon said that uh, while the prevalence of the coronavirus in Scotland is only about 13% of the peak level that we saw in March, the number of infections is growing 7% a day. She uh, said that if nothing was done to stem that trend, we would likely return to peak levels by the end of this month. As in England, there's a strong regional difference. Most of the expansion of cases has been across Scotland's central belt, which includes Edinburgh and Glasgow. And so she's kind of split the country into two bits, with uh, pubs and restaurants closing completely in the central belt, but being allowed to continue to take in customers elsewhere in the country, but without serving alcohol. And alcohol has been very much in the crosshairs. Scotland moved previously to reduce contacts between households by saying you shouldn't visit anyone else's home, except in certain sort of exempted circumstances, like essential childcare or medical reasons. And uh, now they are trying to focus on reducing the role of alcohol and making it more difficult for people to keep that physical distancing. But there's a lot of pain for a hospitality industry. We're, we're getting warnings that many pubs and restaurants won't survive. There's something of a furore in that the government is struggling to define the difference between a cafe and a restaurant because even licensed cafes in the central belt are being able to stay open during the day, but restaurants can't. So this kind of attempt to give a, a variated approach and to keep some level of social contact possible, and Nicola Sturgeon has been stressing this is not a return to full lockdown, it has the result of greater complexity. And I think that's another level of concern for the government now. And what it strikes me, Muir, is the pattern we're seeing in both England and Scotland is this tension between the political centre on this and people outside of it. Nicola Sturgeon has always been very clear that people need to follow these rules, but then elsewhere, people aren't actually doing that. And I think that's why she's acting faster and the government in Westminster is acting faster too. And that's also obviously created this more fractured approach, which has become very confusing for people with different rules, for different parts of the UK here, you know, so if you take the central belt of Scotland, people I'm sure can come in and out of Glasgow and Edinburgh from the countryside and have very different rules there. But really, is there any particular way to get around this that obviously you can have more clarity, but ultimately this is a pandemic and this localised approach, it still feels like that's the way that all governments are trying to deal with the second wave. Well, exactly. I think we know a lot more about the virus. We're learning about how transmission occurs. Therefore, there should be the potential to have much more focused and targeted measures than the very crude lockdown which we had earlier in the year and which caused such extraordinary economic damage. And yet, as soon as you try to target things more narrowly, you bump up against all kinds of levels of complexity, both geographic and, as we're finding, in defining the difference between a cafe and a pub. And I don't think um, there's going to be any answer to that without high levels of trust in the government and a willingness of people to kind of take responsibility to find out what they're supposed to do in their area and in their particular situation. So it's clearly going to be really important for policymakers to keep the confidence and the trust of the public and that uh, that sort of social self-policing, it's not going to be police who can enforce a lot of this. We, we all need to be 
or at least enough of us need to be taking responsibility for our own actions or the general plan certainly won't work. Indeed. Now, Sarah, obviously this issue of confidence has risen a lot this week with the problems with the testing and tracing regime where it was revealed that thousands of tests hadn't been correctly entered because an Excel spreadsheet had run out of columns, which is the kind of error I made in my GCSE IT class and quickly got around to fixing. But it's kind of incredible. This was happening at the heart of government. And every time you see one of these stories, people lose faith in the system. And I think as we heard from Keir Starmer this week, the lack of confidence is a big issue. There's a pattern here on care homes, protective equipment, exams, testing. The Prime Minister ignores the warning signs, hurtles towards a car crash, then looks in the rear mirror and says, what's all that about? It's quite literally government in hindsight. Yes, the mistake, as you mentioned, on the inputting of the data, that has been another blow against Public Health England, the beleaguered public health agency. I I don't think public health agencies generally around the world have been having a particularly good war, but certainly the idea that this test and trace system is the absolute cornerstone of what's going to allow us to live relatively normal lives unless we get a vaccine or a, a really successful therapeutic treatment, that just seems so remote when we all learn about mistakes like that and just looking at the latest tranche of data that didn't even take into account those lost 16,000 cases I think it was the worst ever figure that we've seen for the number of the contacts of the infected people who are traced. It's now less than seven out of 10 who are actually being located. So you've got thousands of people who've been close to infected people who are in turn spreading the virus around the country and obviously contributing to the very sharp rise in cases. There was, I think, a more than 50% week-on-week rise in positive cases, according to the test and trace data. And if I might add to that, the Scottish government has um, insisted that the test and protect system in Scotland, which is based more on traditional public health and local officials than the approach taken by the UK government in England, is working well. And yet we have indications that a relatively small proportion of people who should be social isolating are fully doing so. And of course, we had this extraordinary case of a Scottish National Party MP who, while she should have been social isolating, went to give a speech in Westminster, travelled across the country by public transport, and then returned to her constituency near Glasgow, even after she had had her infection confirmed. With that kind of example, it becomes even more important to find ways to maintain people's confidence. And I think the confidence of local leaders, Mira, is very important, that I'm currently speaking to you from the northeast of England, and I spoke to the leader of Newcastle Council, Nick Forbes, from my latest column. And he's someone who's been very vocal in the news this week, saying that they just don't have confidence in the Westminster government's approach here, and that fundamentally he might support what's been called a circuit breaker lockdown, where you close all hospitality and non-essential services for, say, two weeks, just to try and get the test and tracing system in there. We've heard a lot from regional leaders and from mayors throughout this whole process, Muir, Obviously, nobody would say they're playing politics here. Everybody would say they're doing the best possible things for their people. But ministers in central government are getting increasingly wary, I sense, of people that they think they are playing politics to try and boost their regional standing. 
Well, uh, the SNP is very sensitive to any suggestion that they are playing politics, but obviously politics is the background to every government decision. It has to be said that Nicola Sturgeon has been very careful not to criticise too often and too directly the UK government over its coronavirus policy. And that's probably smart because a lot of the mistakes and failings that the UK government has made have been shared by the Scottish government in large measure. If you look in international terms, uh, Scotland's death rates in this pandemic, while lower than England, look very bad. So there hasn't been an overt effort by the Scottish government to claim that the UK government has been doing things badly. But I think there is the perception that the Scottish government has been doing at least somewhat better is certainly a factor in the very high approval rates for the SNP and for Ms Sturgeon at the moment. And very briefly, Sarah, just a last thought for you. Well, obviously having lots of these local lockdowns, I think 17 million people in England are now facing regional lockdowns. Are we heading to a place, do you think, where we have so many local lockdowns? Effectively, we are heading for a second nationwide lockdown, which it might be less stringent than what we saw earlier in the year with schools and businesses still open, but nowhere near where we were in the summer. I think clearly, politically, Boris Johnson and his government will move heaven and earth not to have to put in place something which will be seen as a replica of what we had back in March. But I take your point that we're increasingly getting a patchwork quilt, which is getting larger and larger, and the gaps are getting smaller and smaller to the point where it will, in effect, cover the majority of the country. One point I I also wanted to make about regional mayors, these very strong voices that we've had emerging, Andy Burnham in Greater Manchester, Steve Rotherham in Liverpool, is it seems to me this is the first time that the Westminster government has really had to reckon with the consequences of English devolution, which I think is something that's quite distant for the current generation of Westminster politicians. This was something that came in under Tony Blair's government almost 20 years ago, even though in fact The mastermind behind it in many ways was Michael Heseltine, a grandee of the Tory party. They don't seem to have been prepared at Westminster for the very strong pushback and demand for inclusion and information that they've been getting from those regional mayors. Sarah Muir, thank you very much. This week was the Conservative Party Conference, which in normal times would have been a defining event of the political year. Of course, it was all online, but ministers still gave their keynote speeches and fringe events debated the issues of the day, but it was all overshadowed by the latest pandemic news, highlighting the challenge the Johnson government faces in getting anything else done. Still, Boris Johnson did his best to focus on the future and crucially his domestic vision. Channeling Clement Attlee, the Prime Minister talked of a new settlement for the country after coronavirus that would link into his levelling up agenda to tackle regional inequalities. We've been through too much frustration and hardship just to settle for the status quo ante, to think that life can go on as it was before the plague. And it will not. In the depths of the Second World War, when just about everything had gone wrong, the government sketched out a vision of the post-war New Jerusalem that they wanted to build. And that's what we're doing now in the teeth of this pandemic. 
But George Parker, what did you make of the Prime Minister's speech and what were the highlights for you? Because as ever with Mr Johnson, it struck me as very big on rhetoric and vision and not actually a huge amount of detail. Well, you can't blame Boris Johnson for wanting to move the agenda on away from coronavirus. And that's plainly what he was doing, harking back to 1942 and the beverage report and building a new Jerusalem and how out of the darkness comes light and all the rest of it. I mean, that's what Boris Johnson does. And it's the kind of speech you probably would expect him to give. The problem with the speech, there were two fundamental problems with it. The first one was that there was hardly any detail behind what the Prime Minister was proposing. So there was sort of an attempt to unearth exactly what he meant by the government supporting the idea of 95% mortgages to help first-time buyers. No detail at all behind that. Not a massive amount of detail about the wind farm proposals either. But I think the bigger criticism of the speech, acknowledged by some inside the government, was it looked like a diversionary tactic, that really the Prime Minister should have been addressing all of his attention to the coronavirus pandemic, which is going to dominate our lives and the economy and the political outlook for the next six months at the very least. Robert Shrimsley, it's clear that's what the Prime Minister wanted to do, because I think every time you see him give a speech or a TV interview, it's clear in his demeanour, his eyes, his body language, that he wants to be talking about anything but coronavirus, yet he really doesn't have any choice. No, that's right. I mean, leaders don't get to choose the circumstances in which they operate. The point is, the countries who elect someone who they hope can swim, and then put them out into the water, and they have to deal with the ocean they find. And I think the problem is, it's obvious that Boris Johnson just hates where he is now. He hates hating this crisis. He's hating all the things it's getting in the way of. And he's hating the kind of leader he has to be. He's hating having to close down parts of the economy. So he's desperate to raise our eyes to the future. I mean, it reminded me of that old Vera Limwater I'm talking about. It's a lovely day tomorrow. You know, but the trouble is we're not in tomorrow yet. And there are major, major decisions that need to be taken for the country at the moment. And, you know, wind farms and 95% mortgages, these are all good ideas that the Tories have pushed before. But the point is, we have cancer patients who are worried about whether they're going to be treated. We have children in schools wondering whether their exams are going to happen. And if they're not going to happen, what is going to be put in place for that? We have obviously the virus itself beginning to take off again and test and trace still not in a place to tackle it. And I'm afraid everything you say about anything else when you're in those circumstances just feels like an attempt not to engage with reality. Well, as you referenced, there was one key policy announcement in Boris Johnson's speech, and that was about wind power. The Prime Minister said that wind farms offshore could power enough electricity for every home in the UK within a decade. And the thing, George, I found most fascinating about this was Boris Johnson seemed to attack himself in this speech, that he was referring to those Conservatives who talked as wind turbines as little more than little blenders. And I think it was that kind of rhetoric that one Boris Johnson used to write about in columns and spectator magazine pieces. Yeah, I think he said, didn't he, that people 20 years ago were saying that wind power wouldn't be able to knock the skin off a rice pudding. Well, in fact, as someone pointed out, this was something that Boris Johnson was saying as recently as seven years ago. And you sometimes have to wonder whether Boris Johnson actually really pays attention to debates that are going on in public life. And it only seems to be when he's actually confronted by something staring him straight in the eyes that he actually does something about it. I'm thinking particularly here about his obesity strategy, which he also used to lampoon until he became ill with COVID-19 and blamed it on the fact he was too fast. And then he decided that he would do something about it because it happened to him. A bit like that with wind farm announcements. You know, great. I mean, a lot of the stuff was in the Conservative manifesto. I think most people would think that offshore wind power is a good thing. It creates jobs in some of the northern seats that he's trying to consolidate in, particularly on Teesside and the Humber. 
that's all well and good. But the amount of money announced in the speech, 160 million, is small beer in the current climate. And also, it's again, it's a slightly diversionary tactic away from some of the really big decisions that Boris Johnson has to take on energy. In this case, what on earth is he going to do about Britain's stricken nuclear power programme? Well, the other notable speech at the virtual Conservative Party conference, Robert, was Rishi Sunak. And there's obviously something jarring when you listen to what the Chancellor had to say about the tough choices ahead. We have a sacred responsibility to future generations to leave the public finances strong. And through careful management of our economy, this Conservative government will always balance the books. If instead... We argue there is no limit on what we can spend, that we can simply borrow our way out of any hole. What is the point in us? Well, I think there's people in Downing Street who would like to spend and borrow as much as possible, Robert, particularly to build this new Jerusalem. And I think this points to one of the big debates once we get on the other side of coronavirus, which is this tension within the Tory voting coalition. Yes, that's absolutely true. Although I have to say, I wouldn't put any money on this particular government balancing the books uh, for all the things that Rishi Sunak is saying, though for one of the reasons I think you're alluding to, which is that the Conservative government has weaned itself off of austerity. I was talking to somebody in Westminster the other day, he said, nobody looks back on the Cameron Osborne years with any affection. They've got used to being able to spend and they've got used to not raising taxes and they want to carry on with both those circumstances, even while they articulate the view that they have to balance the budget. And I think, you know, the truth is fiscal probity is, is, is a bit like chastity and it, it is considerably more alluring when you're nowhere near it. And I think that Rishi Sunak is making an argument and it's also making him very popular with the Conservatives. And it is roughly what he believes. There's no question that he is a fiscal hawk. And I think this actually was reflected the next day when Boris Johnson, in his speech, having invoked Attlee and all the great things that his government is going to do and the state is going to do to make it a better country, He then veered off into a different position where he said, actually, but you've got to remember the state can't do everything and we can't spend everything. And he went into a great defence of the private sector, which I think also shows just how discombobulated he's been by the growing popularity of Rishi Sunak. But uh, just to pick that up, I mean, that that was another inconsistency in Boris Johnson's speech that he was there sort of saying that in the end, the state had to get out of the way and it was the wrong conclusion to draw from the pandemic that the state could do everything and the private sector was fantastic. And then... He went off and listed a whole load of areas where the state was going to get involved from whether it's the energy market or particularly the housing market. And also you had Rishi Sunak one day saying that essentially taxes were going to have to rise and the Conservatives had a sacred mission to restore the public finances to health. And the next day you had Boris Johnson announcing that he wanted to see a competitive tax system for the corporate sector, which is a code for tax cuts. And the other thing I think was notable this week, George, was about planning reform, because for Boris Johnson and people in Downing Street, shaking up the planning system and essentially making it easier to build without having to go through red tape is absolutely course that levelling up mission and unlocking brownfield sites in the north of England and in the Red War seats that voted Tory for the first time. But we saw quite a clear backlash from southern Tory MPs, including one Theresa May. The problem with these proposals, the problem with this algorithm on housing numbers, is that it doesn't guarantee a single extra home being built. And far from levelling up, it forces in more investment into London and the south. Yes, absolutely. Theresa May seems to be inventing herself as a bit of a rebel, someone who was always seen as ultra loyal to the Conservative causes, has been causing problems with Boris Johnson, whether it was on breaking the international law over Brexit or now on planning. And 
I will preface my remarks, as all Tory MPs did in the debate this week, by saying, of course, more houses need to be built. And I think actually the government is onto something because people have, have mucked around and taken half steps to try and fix the housing supply problem for a decade, or in fact, probably decades. And actually, this is quite a bold attempt to try and sort things out by saying we're going to build 300,000 homes a year. And here's a, an algorithm which will say where they're going to go. The problem is it runs straight into political reality, as you were alluding to, Seb. First of all, is any policy seriously going to survive when it's built on an algorithm after the, the disaster on the exams results over the summer? I think the answer to that is no. And the second thing, and it sort of comes right to the heart of the Conservative Party dilemma now, which is it's simultaneously the party of the rich South and the red wall seats that you're writing about, Seb, so frequently. And on planning, planning is a good case in point. Are Southern Tories going to vote for something which is going to involve, as Damien Green put it, turning the Garden of Kent into a, a patio? And you'll get a similar situation later on in this parliament when Rishi Sunak decides he wants to put up taxes to help to pay for the projects that Boris Johnson wants to fund in the north of England. And people in the south will say, well, hang on a sec, that's all well and good, but not on our voters. So there are some big problems coming up. And the fact you've got a Tory backbench rebellion being led by Theresa May on planning gives you a sign of the tensions that are sort of looming once coronavirus is actually finally out of the way. And I think this goes to the point that we've been making for a while, which is, I mean, this government has lost all the goodwill it ever had on the back benches, and it's lost it in an extraordinarily swift amount of time. And some of it is to do with the crisis and people being unhappy with particular policies, but it's also to do with the way it hasn't worked its own party, it hasn't managed its own party. It's been contemptuous of its MPs, scathing about them. You know, they've all read the comments that Dominic Cummings has made about them, you know, the members of the European Research Group, many of whom helped Boris Johnson become Prime Minister, describing themselves as seeing themselves described as a metastasizing tumor. You know, that kind of stuff doesn't make people minded to give the government the benefit of the doubt when politically difficult decisions are being made. And it's the desire to be on side and be a team player and also the hope of preferment, which cuts a rebellion from being 50 to being 10 and makes allows the government to get its business through. The problem is. Downing Street needs to reset its relations with its own MPs, and it's going to have to do it increasingly quickly because the mood is hardening, not softening. Yes, George, finally, that does seem to be still the big problem for Boris Johnson is that he hasn't spent much time smoothing Tory MPs. In fact, he never has ever since when he first became an MP in 2001 and when he returned to the Commons in 2015. He wasn't seen a lot around the tea rooms and tried to get people on side. He became Prime Minister because Tory MPs saw him as their route for delivering Brexit and winning the election, which obviously was proven right. But in terms of day-to-day -day governing, there's still this big gap there. And I think we're going to have a bit of a crunch point coming next week when there's going to be a parliamentary vote on the 10pm curfew for pubs and restaurants, which we're expecting a lot of Tories to rebel. But then also when they have to vote on further coronavirus restrictions, and it seems every day there's an angry Tory MP or former minister popping up and saying, I don't like this approach. I'm going to vote against it. Well, he's not a details person, and he's definitely not a House of Commons man. And those shortcomings are now being exposed at a time when suddenly an 80-seat House of Commons majority doesn't look quite so formidable as it did a few months ago. And you raised the question about Tory rebellions next week in the Commons over coronavirus strategy. Ironically, Boris Johnson will probably be saved in those votes by the Labour Party, because although Keir Starmer's stepping up his criticism of Boris Johnson, he's been very keen to suggest that he's not going to vote down at least 
maybe they'll abstain some of these new restrictions. But it's not a great position for a Conservative Prime Minister to be in when he's relying on the support or the tacit support of the Labour Party to get his business through. George and Robert, thank you for joining as always. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you enjoyed this podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Josh Delamere. The sound engineer is Louise Burton and the editor, Liam Nolan. Until next time, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.